Welcome to Who's in STEM. I'm Ken Ono, your host and the STEM advisor to the provost and the Marvin Rosenblum Professor of Mathematics at the University of Virginia. When I was a kid, I wanted to walk on the moon like Neil Armstrong. I wanted to dig up and study ancient bones like Mary and Louis Leakey. I dreamt of communicating with primates like Jane Goodall. A fan of science my entire life, I've been mesmerized by books like Carl Sagan's Cosmos and Leon Letterman's The God Particle. But some apples don't fall far from the tree, and as the son of a mathematician, I became a mathematician. On Who's in STEM, our goal is to evoke such flights of imagination and wonder by showcasing the cornucopia of all that is STEM at UVA. The marvelous world of UVA science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, UVA STEM. Our guest is Professor Bethany Teachman, professor of clinical psychology, whose expertise on anxiety speaks to all of us living in today's stressed out world. But before that, let's celebrate who's making discoveries, pun intended. In December, the UVA Cancer Center performed its 1,000th stem cell transplant, marking a decade of hard work and innovation. Stem cell transplants can be curative for blood cancers like leukemia, lymphoma, and myeloma. Also, UVA Health's Dr. Jeff Elias and his team, they've made world news for their work on focused ultrasound brain surgery. Their approach concentrates powerful sound waves. In the words of CNN Sanjay Gupta, it's brain surgery, but no scalpel, no incision, and no blood. How awesome is that? Also, UVA received a $100 million gift to establish the Paul and Diane Manning Institute of Biotechnology. This institute will transform medical care and help find new treatments and cures, as well as boost our local economy here in the Commonwealth. Finally, and this is a great one, UVA alumni Alexander Olison and Graham Smith were listed on Forbes 30 Under 30 for co-founding Babylon Microfarms, an exciting venture promoting sustainable foods based on hydroponic structures that grow vegetables faster and with less water. So I hope that all brings good news to you. There's a lot going on in the UVA STEM universe. And that was Who's Making Discoveries? Today, we're talking about anxiety, which is in the air as we emerge from COVID, and specifically here at UVA as we continue to grieve the events of November 13th, when UVA football players Devin Chandler, Deshaun Perry, and Lavelle Davis Jr. lost their lives in the tragic shooting on grounds. Our guest today is Professor Bethany Teachman. She runs the Program for Anxiety, Cognition, and Treatment otherwise known as PACT. She's a clinical therapist herself, an award-winning scientist, director of clinical training for the Department of Psychology. She trains doctoral students. Thank you, Professor Teachman, for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. 
Professor Teachman, what drives your research? I am spoiled because in my job, I get paid to sit around and think about questions that fascinate me. And there are two that really stand out. The first is, how do people think differently when they're anxious and, and what can we do about it? So years ago, it became fascinating to me when I started out doing therapy and started out in this field. And I would talk to someone who is intelligent, generally rational, and they've had 500 panic attacks in their lifetime. And yet on the 501st, they still are thinking they're going to have a heart attack, even though 500 panic attacks have happened and they haven't had that heart attack. So what is it about the ways people are thinking differently when they're anxious and how can we help them to shift those patterns in order to help them live more effectively? And our second question follows from frustration that I experienced as I got into this field. One of the things about anxiety is that people tend to avoid things when they're anxious, and that can include treatment. And so you combine that with all of the challenges in our healthcare system, and what we see is people truly not getting access to the care they need. So take social anxiety disorder. On average, people are going to go 20 to 25 years with the disorder before they seek help if they ever do get professional help. And so we in our lab have become fascinated with the question of how can we increase access to care and bring interventions to people when and where they need them most not just waiting for them to come to us, but going to them and trying to match their needs in their environment. Wow, these are panic attacks. This is so important. How do you go about your research? I understand that you work with engineers who develop mobile technology. Tell us about that. How does that work? Absolutely. I work with an amazing team of psychologists, engineers, computer scientists. And on the engineering side, it's led by Dr. Laura Barnes and Mehdi Bukhechba. And we use two primary methods in our work. The first is what you can think of as mobile sensing. So if we want to go to where people are and when they need us, it means we can't just bring them into the lab or even just bring them into the clinic. So instead, we want to understand how anxiety and difficulties managing emotion affect them in their daily life. And so we use mobile sensing often on their phones or using wearables like watches where we're sensing things passively so we don't have to ask them lots of questions. So we're monitoring their psychophysiology. We're tracking their GPS and their accelerometer movements. And then we do what's called active sensing where we are doing ecological momentary assessments where where we're doing surveys throughout the day to say, hey, how are you feeling right now? And what are you doing to try to manage your emotions? And, and is it working for you, not working for you? What's the context? What are the things that are happening here? So we have this whole mobile sensing side. And then, of course, we want to help people if they are in a difficult period. So the other big method that we use is thinking about doing digital delivery of our interventions in order for people to be able to access them either on the web or through mobile applications. And and one of the reasons we're really excited about those approaches is it means we can disseminate, send out our programs to lots of people. So our web version, for example, has been used by people in over 80 countries at wow, this 80 point. 80 countries. Wow. So I want to talk a little bit more about these mobile apps, right? We all have our cell phones. Our cell phones control our lives. And that's so fascinating. So as I understand it, one of your projects is called Mind Trails, and it's supposed to help people manage their anxiety. And I assume this is one of the, one of the apps that thousands of people worldwide have been using. Tell us about how that works. What does it look like if I were a user of Mind Trails? 
Absolutely. One of the things we know is that when people are anxious, they tend to think in rigid, inflexible ways. And lots of things in the environment are a little bit ambiguous or uncertain. So, for example, I don't know right now what your listeners are thinking about the things that I'm saying. Don't, I don't panic have- about it. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't have that information. And so I'm constantly assigning meanings. And when people are prone to anxiety, they tend to assign catastrophic, threatening meanings, right? Assuming, oh, people are bored. They think I sound stupid. I sound, you know, whatever it happens to be. And so what we want to do is help people shift their thinking patterns so they can think in more flexible ways, so that they don't assign the worst possible meaning, the worst, most negative interpretation. We do that through a program called Cognitive Bias Modification for Interpretations. It's a mouthful. You can just say CBM for short. But the idea is that we're going to give people lots of practice reading brief stories that raise this ambiguity, this uncertainty of, is there a potential threat in the environment? What's going to happen? How's it going to turn out? And then we help people learn that most of the time, it's going to resolve in a non-threatening way. And so they get lots of practice assigning not terrible endings to stories. And with that, we're trying to shift their thinking style so that it becomes more flexible. And our long-term goal with this is to think about offering lots of versions of these programs so that we can meet the needs of diverse communities. Kind of like a digital apothecary, right? Mm -hmm. You go into the pharmacy and one time you're going to pull out the cold medicine that you need. Another time you're going to be getting something to help you with headaches. And somebody who's an older adult going to the pharmacy is going to choose something different than maybe a child is going to need when they go in. So again, we want to adapt our digital programs to meet different needs. So for example, for the UVA community, we've launched a version called Who's Think Calmly. Uh And we have different versions. We have a version for undergraduate students, one for graduate students, one for faculty, and one for staff, because we recognize that there are different things that are going to be causing stress and causing anxiety depending on your role at the university, as well as some things that are in common. And so we want to offer programs that are specialized. We also recently launched a web version in Spanish because we wanted to make sure that we could meet the needs of diverse communities, including those who identify as Latinx. We launched a version for teens. I also collaborate with uh, Jesse Gibson, a professor in nursing and we are creating a version for individuals with neurodegenerative movement disorders Mm. who experience a lot of anxiety but often don't have good access to anxiety therapies. And we think this work is especially important now, especially since COVID, where we saw this huge rise, especially at the beginning, in anxiety disorders. And so we did a version during the early stages of COVID. And what we found was that people found it particularly helpful if they were a person who was high in anxiety about COVID. And so our general goal is to recognize Digital solutions, whether it be phones, our apps, they're here to stay. And so what we want to think about is how do we shift the use away from unhelpful uses, things like doom scrolling where we're constantly just looking at negative stories. Oh, yeah. Right. Lots of people are prone to that. An unhealthy social comparison where we go on social media and sort of say, oh, I'm not having as much fun as that person. I don't look as good as that person. Shift it away from those unhealthy uses of the digital devices and instead what are the positive impacts that technology can have on our mental health and this is a unique opportunity at this time to really make some changes wow that's so fascinating so i have to admit i'm somewhat addicted to facebook i'm in my 50s and you know five ten minutes often disappears just scrolling through the fascinating lives of others and so this offers me and i think many others quite good news Here at the university, we celebrate the achievements of our faculty and staff, 
but we also were the flagship university of the Commonwealth of Virginia. And so we want to be measured by the quality of the students that we produce. I've learned that in your work, you triumph something called team science, and you find that this approach helps lower barriers for entry into STEM. This is something that's very important to us here at the university. Can you speak to your personal experience as a young scientist and explain what team science is for all of us? Absolutely. UVA is really a phenomenal place to be if you want to be doing this kind of work because we are surrounded by incredible talent at all levels. So I work with 15 to 20 undergraduate students in my lab every semester. I have a team of eight graduate students that I get to work with, um, and then of course postdocs, faculty, all doing different pieces. And the work that we do is very interdisciplinary. So as I mentioned, we collaborate closely with folks in engineering and in other departments. The reason is that if you want to solve complex social problems, you're going to need a team with different areas of expertise. No one person, no one lab is going to be able to have all of the areas of expertise that need to come together in order to understand a problem at a deep level and think about how we can come up with solutions. And so with team science, what I really value about it, first of all, I'm learning new stuff from the team that I work with every single day. I'm just surrounded by these amazing people who have skill sets and knowledge and experiences that I don't have. Including our first and second years who come with incredible skills. Absolutely. It truly is amazing. And so one of the things that we try to practice on our team is the idea that if we're going to do really good work, by definition, we're going to be in a space where we're not certain what the answers are. We don't know the right way to do that, figure that problem out. We don't know what the answer is going to be because a problem that's worth doing is probably in that space. Right. Otherwise, it wouldn't be research. Exactly. And so we want people to feel comfortable with not exactly knowing stuff, feeling maybe even a little stupid for a, a period of time, but viewing that as a challenge, not as a threat, an opportunity to learn from others, work together, and go through the wonderful process of science of saying, I don't know this yet, but I'm going to figure it out. And the successes are even sweeter. When Absolutely. That, when that happens. Absolutely. Wonderful. Now, Professor Teachman, the events of November 13th affected all of us. For me, as a professor living in the Belvedere community, it just came in the form of texts from the university police every, every few minutes. But I had students in class who were on lockdown, some in the libraries, even one that was on lockdown in the parking garage, just 100 yards from where all the activity was. And so we have to recognize that there's a tremendous range of reactions that were experienced by members of our community, and that continues to this day. And so for those that may be struggling still significantly with this return to grounds, what words of advice do you have for them? Absolutely. You know, as with any experience of a trauma or difficult event, we see both a wide range of experiences in in terms of how directly people were involved and impacted and what losses they experienced as a result of that event, and also what effects it has on them afterwards. So the first thing I would say is that we really want to normalize the experience of anxiety and having tough feelings. It is appropriate when you have been exposed to something really, really painful to feel sadness, to feel anxiety, to feel pain. So we don't want to act as though that's an abnormal, unhealthy reaction. Sad things have happened. And so it's natural that people will feel sad. 
And so one of the things I recommend is that people avoid that urge to withdraw, to avoid things, instead to stay engaged, seek social support. Even when you don't really feel like it, that process of staying connected with others and doing things is really important. And you want to have a balance of activities, right? Not just one thing. So do some things that are fun, some things that are relaxing, some things that make you feel productive, exercise, all of those things of meeting your goals. And at a basic level, We want people to figure out what it is that they value, what do they care about, and then try to build a life that allows them to live true to those values. And we know, for example, that if you have a value of helping others and contributing, that's actually going to help you too. The research is really clear that when we are doing things that are consistent with our values, especially when we're also doing things that help others, it's going to make a big difference. And what we know from research on lots of different experiences that people have following traumas is that many people using some of those strategies I talked about of seeking social support, of having a range of balance in their life of different activities, all of those kinds of things, of practicing the different perspective taking that I talked about with the cognitive training that we do, those strategies will be sufficient for many people to help them over time recover and feel like they can manage the difficult emotions that they're feeling. For others, though, that's not going to be enough. And so if you find that these hard feelings are lasting for a long period of time, they are persisting in a way where it's pervasively affecting your functioning. It's making it hard for you to be successful in your work, to be successful as a student in school. It's hurting your relationships. If it's hurting your life in those ways, that's when we want to encourage somebody to think about, hey, why don't I seek some professional help? We are very lucky at the university community that if you're an employee, faculty, FEEP is available, CAPS is available if you're a student. And there's lots of good programs, you know, other clinics and other services that are available available in the community that people can take advantage of. I will say that if someone is not sure whether they should get help or not, I encourage them to get the evaluation, to take advantage of those resources and to try to find out what is it that I need in order to live my best life. Thank you very much, Professor Teachman. We'll make sure that links are available to the resources that you described when we publish this podcast. Thank you for your wisdom. That was Professor Teachman. I have to say you're a shining example of President Ryan's vision for UVA to be great and good in all that we do. So thank you for making the world a better place. Thank you for the very kind words. It's a pleasure to talk with you. So I'm Ken Ono, STEM advisor to the provost and Marvin Rosenblum, professor of mathematics. And you've been listening to Who's in STEM. Who's in STEM is a production of WTJU 91.1 FM and the Office of the Provost at the University of Virginia. Who's in STEM is produced by Catherine Kossaboom, Rhea Verma, Mary Garner-McGee, and Ariane Ballou. Our music is composed and performed by Robert Schneider and John Ferguson of Apples in Stereo. Listen and subscribe to Who's in STEM on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back soon with another conversation about scientific and technological innovation at the university.